Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Neil Ellison. Good morning. I know that um, <clears throat> they don't want me to do this, but um, I'm excited to have my daughter Lisa here, our oldest daughter, and her husband Tim Bodie. They're over here in the back with my wife. And Maddie, our granddaughter, is over there. And then we have Josiah and Gabriel who are in the children's program this morning. So uh, I'm just pleased to have them here uh, today. I'm going to start out with a question. How many of you, think back now, think, how many of you, uh, when you were in school, just love to take tests? Anybody here just love? Yeah, well, I didn't think so. Yeah, that, that's good. Okay. All right. Um, how many of you actually failed the test? Okay, we have some honest people. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. Yeah, we've all failed a, a test here before. Um, actually, uh, we know that there are some people that are frightened uh, to take a test. It's called test anxiety. In fact, there's an organization called the American Test Anxieties Association, and they report about 16 to 20% of students have high test anxiety. And uh, 18% of all adults have test anxiety as well. But for some, taking a test isn't really a big deal. You know, we think, uh, well, there's a lot of tests in the course, and if I don't do well on this one, I can make up on the others. Or, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, we have teachers that give us extra credit. We're always looking for extra credit for making up for the tests that we don't do well on. When I was in law school, it was an entirely different situation. We had to read 50 pages of text per night per course. And you only had one test at the end of the semester. And, uh, you know, it was a two-hour test, and they would sit us down and give us these blue books. You remember the old blue books you would write in? So it was, you know, a, a written test. And um, anyway, you, it was two hours long, and if you failed the test, you failed the class. And the bad thing was, is if you failed the class, you were out of school. They kicked you out of school. You couldn't fail a class. And the hard thing was, is I remember the first class I was in, uh, the first thing as we sat down in our chairs, the professor said, look to your right and look to your left because one of those people will not be here next term. They won't make it. I'm going to talk about test anxiety. (laughs) Well, Mark last week, mentioned that we were teaching a series uh, here on special words, okay? Well, the word that I have chosen for today is testing, okay? And when we think of the word testing, of course, obviously the first thing we think of is our school experience and um, measuring up. You know, we take a test to see whether we pass or fail. I'm going to talk about an entirely different type of testing though. It's the idea that we understand of being tested by God. We read a lot about God testing people in the Bible, don't we? 
And the Bible has a lot actually to say about it. Adam and Eve were tested. Job was tested. Abraham was tested. Moses was tested. Israel was tested over and over again. Samson was tested. Deborah and Esther were tested. Daniel was tested. David was tested. The apostles were tested. Paul was tested on the road to Damascus when he was struck blind. He didn't even know if he would ever see again. And believe it or not, even Jesus, the Son of God, was tested as well. The strange thing about that is as we read about the beginning of that account, we read that about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And we're told, it says, behold the heavens opened up. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But the verse after that says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wow, God's beloved son, he loved so much and so proud of, all of a sudden he is led up into the desert to be tempted. This actually marked the beginning of his ministry. This was a time of testing for him. And even Jesus was tested, and it wasn't the only time that he was tested, because we see him being tested again in the Garden of Gethsemane. So God plays no favorites. But why does this happen to us? Does God get some perverse pleasure in seeing people struggle or go through adversity? Let's take a look at this. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear. And may the words and meditations of my mouth and of my heart be acceptable to thee, O Lord. Amen. I want us to focus today on the story of Abraham and God's testing of him. The testing of Abraham is profound because it challenges him to act in a manner entirely inconsistent with his knowledge of who God is. It challenges him to abandon his own future hopes and dreams. It challenges him to relinquish the promises of God. It challenges him to trust God and him alone and no one else. Our passage of scripture comes from the 22nd chapter of Genesis. I'm going to introduce this passage to you by showing you a, a portrayal of the story. There's a talented New York actor by the name of Max McLean who memorized the entire book of Genesis. And he turned it into a stage production. I want to show you a clip of this dramatization of Genesis 22 verses 1 to 14. I want us to understand the background of this story and why it's so powerful. Abraham had wanted a son his entire life. In his time, to have a son meant that he had a future. 
To have a son meant that he had a family. To have a son meant that he had a heritage. He had a legacy. And God had appeared to him and promised him that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars. But when a son was not forthcoming at his wife Sarah's insistence, he has a child, a son by his wife's slave, Hagar. How oftentimes do we try and fulfill God's promises through our own efforts? And Abraham was not, did not have a son of his own until he was 100 years old. And at that time, his son Isaac was born. Ishmael had been born 16 years prior to that time. But even after the promise of 20 years, Abraham had to wait to have his own child. Let's go back and look at the text for a minute here. If you have a Bible, open it or uh, use the Bible in the pew because it's just good to refer to a couple of things if we can in the passage. There are some things I want to point out that I want us to remember and, and focus on here for a second. We know that um, God says to Abraham, these words, and these words are so important. He says, sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you lo love. And he says, I want you to go and I want you to travel a distance of three days to a place that I will show to you, a place on Mount Moriah. And we're told that Abraham arose early in the morning. Think a minute, if you were Abraham, maybe he gets up early in the morning, maybe he's a morning person, but you know what I think is? He was so in anguish that he could not sleep. And as hard as he tried, toss and turn, and finally he gets up early. We're also told that Abraham went out and he chopped wood for the sacrifice. Now he had many servants that could have done this task, but in his anguish I see him chopping and chopping and with every swing of the hatchet or the axe, it's like, why God, why Lord, why is this happening? He takes his servants and his son Isaac and he travels three days and he tells the servants to wait and he and the boy will leave to worship and return. The interesting thing is the writer of the book of Hebrews actually tells us that the faith of Abraham was such that he believed that God would raise his son from the dead. When Abraham is told by God to sacrifice his son, his only son, Abraham does not flinch. I try and put myself in that situation and I think my reaction might have been, you have got to be kidding. 
this, is this some cruel joke? I prayed and prayed for a son my entire life. You've answered my prayer. You've given me what I have wanted most of all in life, and you promised me a nation of offspring, and now you're going to take it all away? What's wrong with you? Is this some cruel joke? What have I done that you would hate me this much? Isn't that a reaction that many would have? But in the midst of all this, Abraham says none of these things. And when the son questions his father, he says, where is the sacrifice, dad? The wood's here, the fire's here. Where is the lamb? Of course, Abraham's reply is, instead he says, God will provide a sacrifice. I don't think that this is some passive response or an attempt to soften the blow or some rationalization. I believe that within himself, and this is speculation, but I believe in his heart, he says, I will not let this thing destroy my faith. I will not allow this to destroy my trust in God. I will not allow this to divert me from the path which God has set before me. God will provide a sacrifice. These words were so significant. For these words are what will shake all of creation. It amounts to a prophecy, a foretelling that will resound through all eternity. God will provide a sacrifice. And it will be an only son. But it's not just any son. It is the only son of the living God. The one who will redeem all of creation. Understand what is going on here, people. This is a test of Abraham's faith. It is a test of his obedience but it is a statement that speaks to the future plan of God through all eternity. God will provide a sacrifice. Yes, God provides a ram, a male offering caught in the thicket and saves Isaac's life. We read in verses 13 and 14, he says, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And then these words are key. They're not incidental. For Abram says, I call this place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Believe it or not, Abraham is not talking about what has just happened here. If we look ahead, we see our next slide here. Two views of the Dome of the Rock. 
This is in Israel. This is a view from the distance up here. The Dome of the Rock. And if you go inside, we have a picture, I believe, inside of it. It looks like this. Today, you can't even get in there. I was there in 1981 and saw what was inside. You want to know where this is? It's on Mount Moriah. The mountain of providence on the mountain where the Lord had said is the mountain of the Lord. It will be provided. If we look here again, we see on this map here, here's the Dome of the Rock. And of course it points to Mount Moriah. But what we see is history and providence being fulfilled. Eight hundred and fifty years later, we see that God instructed King David to buy a threshing floor from a farmer upon which to build the temple. And forty-five years after that, David's son, King Solomon, will build a temple where sacrifices of lambs were made for the next thousand years. God will provide a sacrifice. And all this takes place on Mount Moriah. The temple itself is believed to have been built right here at this point. But it's also interesting, uh, excuse me, let me read this verse before I jump ahead here. It says, Solomon began, from Second Chronicles, it says, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the, Je uh, the Jebusite on Mount Moriah, but there's an alternate picture here of another part of the map where people now believe may have been a different point right here. This is the highest point on Mount Moriah. It's the pinnacle of Mount Moriah. And what occurs here is as you might discern. This is Golgotha, the place of the skull. Here is the garden tomb, and here is the point at its highest point where they have indicated that Genesis took 22. The attempted sacrifice of Isaac's son took place. Do you see the significance? Over 1800 years after the testing of Abraham, the words of Abraham are fulfilled. God will provide a sacrifice, an everlasting sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice 
On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. In Hebrews 11, as I mentioned before, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And we think, what in the world is that about? We don't even understand what, what, what does it mean? What, what does the writer of Hebrews mean by it was a type? If you look at the literal translation of it, it says he received Isaac back as in a parable. A parable that would speak to the future. A prophecy that would speak to the future of what would happen when God offers his own son. So what I'm telling you here is not just theory. The writer of Hebrews tells us. This was a forecast, a foreshadowing of the time when Jesus himself would be sacrificed on the mount of the Lord where it is provided. We said before that God asked Abraham to give his only son, the son that he loved. Of course, we know John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's one and only son. I mentioned too that Abraham and his son traveled for three days. We know Christ lay three days in the tomb. The son himself was laid down on wood for the sacrifice. Jesus was laid on a cross. The son is spared from death and Jesus is resurrected. Re resurrected. And it all occurs on Mount Moriah. This story is not just about the testing of one man. The story is about a greater picture. The story is the movie trailer for a much greater picture yet to come. This was the coming attraction for what would come to be. This story sets the stage for God's cosmic plan where God is the one to give his beloved son, his only son, for the redemption of mankind. This brings us down to you and I. I don't like to give a message without giving some application. So we ask the question, why are we tested? If God knows everything, why does he have to test us? Did God know in advance what Abraham would do? People are puzzled by the statement where the angel appears and he says to Abraham, he says, now, I, and speaking for God, he says, now I know that you revere God because you are willing to sacrifice your only son that you love. And we ask that question, doesn't God know Abraham's heart? Doesn't God know 
why or what Abraham will do in this situation? He does. But this is the hard part because it's about the word no. If you study Hebrew, and I'll have Mark can attest to this, you know what this is about. But when you study Hebrew, not only is it instead of being read left to right on the page, it's read right to left. And if that's not hard, in the sentence, many of the words are just words grouped together. They're not complete word-for-word sentences. And you have to look at the meaning of the word and all of its applications to be able to form a sentence. Is that right? You understand that. So the word knowing here, I know that you have done this or that you have revered God, is a statement not just about, not just about what Abraham would do at that time, but it's a statement of knowing in the past. I know Abraham's heart. He's saying, I know what you would do in this situation. I know everything about you. But it also speaks to the past, knowing the past, but it also speaks to the present. And I now know. If I said to you, I know the uh, capitals of 50 states of the United States. Or I say, now I know them. It sounds like I just learned them. But if I say, no, I have known and I now know, that's two different things. That's the way this word is used. It's a statement of past knowledge and a statement of present knowledge. It also takes one other definition or application, and that is, is that it says, I am also revealing that knowledge to you. So when the angel speaks here, he says to Abraham, I have known your heart. I know it now, and I'm revealing it to you and to everybody else, all of us who read that passage, all of us who read this story, this story. Amazing statement. I have known, I know now, and I will reveal it to all. For us to understand testing or adversity, let's take a minute and look here at the context of adversity. I don't have time to unpack all of this, but there are at least three things I want us to look at for a minute. First of all, adversity can be a consequence of our own choices. I know I shouldn't have gone into that relationship my friends told me I shouldn't go there. I saw all kinds of red flags, but I went anyway. I know that was a bad business deal. I know that there was shady, something shady about it. It just didn't feel right. I know I shouldn't have gotten into it. 
and now I'm trapped. I, that car that I, that I really thought I needed and really wanted, that I really couldn't afford, I knew I shouldn't have bought it, but I did anyway. And now I'm really in debt. Adversity sometimes comes from the choices and the consequences of those choices that we make. Also, we know that adversity can come from attacks of Satan. All we have to do is read the book of Job. Now, yes, God had to give Satan permission to test Job, but we know that all, time, all kinds of things happen because of Satan's attempt to bring adversity into our life and to challenge our faith. But the third one here is God's testing. And in this testing, it's important to consider some things. First of all, our circumstances do not define God's presence. Whatever our circumstances are, it doesn't define whether God is with us or in our presence or knows what's going on or paying attention. Nor do our circumstances define God's love for us. Can we be in the midst of adversity and struggling and still believe that God loves us and cares for us? I say, when things are going great, God is with me. God is loving. God is good. I don't have any wants. I'm really in a good place. If I'm in the midst of adversity, do I say God is not merciful? God is not loving? God does not exist? I know a woman who was struggling with her son who was in all kinds of problems and dealing with drugs and all kinds of things. And she said to me, she says, I pray and I pray and I pray and nothing changes. I give up on God. I don't even know if God exists. Our circumstances do not define God's presence. Our circumstances do not speak to his love for us. We know that scripture tells us God never tests us with more than we can handle. Testing actually brings us closer to God. Moses gave a prophecy to the nation of Israel and he said, there will come a time when you will go into the promised land and you will reap all the benefits, you will live in homes that you didn't build, you will eat from vineyards that you didn't plant, and your life will be wonderful. But you will turn away from God. You will seek following him. And the implication is, is that when we're well off, we forget about God. We turn away. So in the midst of adversity, many times God uses those conditions or those circumstances to bring us back to him. God's testing also brings us into a deeper relationship with himself. 
when we're in the midst of adversity and God is working in our life and we see him working at that point in time, we know the reality of his presence with us and we seek after him and our desire is to go deeper in our relationship with him. And also, adversity gives us a better understanding of who God is as we see him work in the midst of our struggles. Again, back to the story of Job. Job said these words. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And as he called out to God to to try and learn why these things were happening to him, He cries out, and he cries out, and he wants to see God face to face here. But eventually, as God appears to him, God says to him, he says, where were you when the stars were hung in the sky? Where were you when the earth was formed? Where were you when Leviathan was formed in the deep? He wasn't being arrogant to Job. What he was saying was, is, Job, understand, I created all these things. I made all these things. I really am in control. I'm taking care of you. Trust in me. Trust in me. And Job finally says, I'm a man who spoke without wisdom. I put my hand over my mouth. We learn about God and who he is and gain understanding of him. It also gives us a better understanding of who we are when we are tested. Remember when you were a child, perhaps, and you had a parent who was down in the swimming pool in the deep end, and you're standing on the side, and your parent's saying, jump, jump, I'll, I'll catch you, I'll catch you, just jump. And we're sitting there, and we're frightened, and we're scared to death, and we're, oh, no, 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 I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then finally we jump, and we're caught, and we get so excited, and that is the greatest thing. And we go back, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we do it again. We gain great faith and great strength even in ourselves. I can do that. Remember the first time when you went out and took a driver's license test? I t- you know, hey, I took it twice. <laughs> first time I hit a barrel. But after you take a test like that, after you take, uh, uh, you pass that test, you know, you begin to think, well, you know, I really can do this. I really can make it. I I, I can drive a car. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. But the point is, is that we gain strength in ourselves and understanding of ourselves as we go through testing and we see God work here. And it strengthens us. And, of course, we gain awareness and dependency on God. We learn as God brings us through adversity that we can't do this on our own. We have to have God with us. We can't do it by ourselves. And as in Abraham's case, it defines our faith. That becomes evident that as I trust in God 
and my faith, I, and, I, and that grows at that point in time. And I, and I can reach out to God and know he's there and walk through the adversity. My faith grows. And then it challenges us. We'll give you a challenge. You know, this church is a family. There are many of you who I've heard say, I am here because this is my family. Some of you have been here 30 years. God is here right now. He hasn't left you. He hasn't left your presence. He doesn't live you, love you any less. And he is in control. Because we're part of the family of God, not because of ourselves, but because we're a part of his family. Abraham trusted in God in the most bizarre of circumstances. Would you like to know the answer to every test that you've taken? Abraham knew the answer to being tested. The answer to every life test for Abraham and all of us is trust in God. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the test, whatever the adversity, whatever the challenge, trust, trust in God. The answer to all life's tests, all of life's quizzes, trust in God. Let me close with this benediction from Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, saith the Lord. Amen and amen and amen. Blessed be the name. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.